Well, again, happy Father's Day. And, you know, some of us, our fathers are no longer here. Others may have not had the greatest of a father in this life. Or maybe you have a father who's still alive and has been a great father. Um, we're finding ourselves in different situations. But you know what all of us have in common? Jesus came to give the most amazing revelation about God. That he is not just his father, but our father. He could have easily said when the disciples asked, teach us how to pray, well, pray to my father. But he said, no, 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 this is how you pray, our father. First two words, our father. I am so glad today I have a father. I had a great father who's gone on to be with the Lord, but I have a greater father. He's the everlasting father. He loves me and he loves you with a perfect everlasting love. And that's really what fathers are all about. And the Bible calls him the father of lights. All lights have come from the father. He's the father of glory, father of mercies. This is our father. And, you know, when you pray, if you pay attention, there's a big difference between praying, God help me, and Father help me. It's a whole different relationship. And that's the relationship Jesus came to reveal. He's the Son of God because God is Father. And we are now children of God. And so we can relate to Him as Abba Father. Amen? God bless you. I have a message today that I hope is going to bless you as much as it's blessed me. I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9, and we're going to read a whole chapter from the Bible. 13 verses. Kids are already going, oh no. 2 Samuel 9, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, David. What an amazing man David was. And some amazing things he did in his lifetime that are recorded for us in Scripture. This is one of them. 2 Samuel 9, ready? Uh, let's change it for now to NIV if we can, sister. There we go. Ready? David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Maker, son of Amiel. 
When Mephibosheth, say it with me, Mephibosheth. If you don't have that name, you can be very thankful that your father didn't name you so. Mephibosheth. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, we're going to be talking about the name in a minute, the son of Saul came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant? Listen to these words. What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Zimon, Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. Let me give you some background. Hopefully you know some of it. But it's very important that you have a framework to put this into. In the opening chapters of 1 Samuel, we find the children of Israel crying out to the prophet Samuel, we want to have a king like all the other nations. It grieved the heart of Samuel, but more so it grieved the heart of God. Because God came back and said, okay, give them a king. I was their king, but they've rejected me. So let them be like all the other nations now and have their king. They got what they cried for, and they cried for what they got. That was pretty good. Somebody write that one down. They got their king. Head and shoulders above all the other men in Israel. Mighty Saul was going to be their king. What a disaster. He was disobedient to the Lord. He ended up a coward. And very tragically, even though he had already in God's mind been replaced with David as his successor to be the king over Israel, Saul continued to chase David persecute him, tried on a number of occasions to kill him. Full of jealousy, demons, evil spirits attacked him in the latter years of his life. Very tragic story, what happened to Saul. Saul had a son named Jonathan. David and Jonathan 
became very good friends. They were not gay friends, contrary to what is now popularly taught. They had a good friendship. David and Saul actually, and we'll look at this in a minute, they became such good friends that they made a covenant with each other. And it's important to understand that to even understand what's happening in what we just read. Sadly, in the last chapter of 1 Samuel, chapter 31, Saul and Jonathan and several of the other sons of Saul are fighting against the Philistines and they're all killed. Jonathan dies in battle alongside of his father and there was only one surviving son of Saul. We'll look at him in a minute. But Jonathan is now dead. And to understand the language that we just read in 2 Samuel 9, you have to understand the kind of a relationship that David and Jonathan had. And I'm only going to read a portion of the covenant that they made with each other, which is why David even asked this question, is there anyone left of the house of Saul so that I can show them God's kindness for Jonathan's sake? Very important words. And we'll come back to those also. In 1 Samuel 20, from verse 14 to 16, we get enough of the language of this covenant that David and Jonathan made. And here Jonathan is speaking in verse 14, and he says to David, Show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord. Notice that? That's why David said, To whom can I show God's kindness? He's remembering this covenant. Show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. And I think Jonathan understood that meant his own father. Because he knew this conflict it was a one-sided conflict. David wasn't fighting against Saul. Saul was fighting against David. And Jonathan understood that. And you know the story. A couple times Jonathan tried to stand up for David, and he almost got a javelin in his head from his own father. Okay? So this was a very serious situation for Jonathan to still want to go ahead and make a covenant with this man who is public enemy number one in the mind of his father, Saul. Alright? So, show me kindness even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Jonathan knew that David was going to be king one day. He knew that. And so in verse 16, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And then all the way down in verse 42, they're still having this uh, conversation back and forth. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. 
saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Now, 2 Samuel 9, many years have passed. Many years. And I think we'll be able to see that timeline a little more carefully in a minute. But just trust me for now. A number of years have passed. Jonathan is dead. David is king. And it would have been very easy for David to think, well, Jonathan's gone now. You know, I'm king. Those were just words that were spoken 20 years ago or whenever they were. And one of the main points I want to get across to you today is the power of covenant. The power of covenant. It's trampled on today in our culture, but covenant is still something very, very powerful. And we'll come back to that. But back to David's opening question in 2 Samuel 9.1, is there anyone still left, the words are critical here, of the house of Saul, to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? So any survivor of Saul, David was ready and willing to show kindness to for the sake of Jonathan. Now, if you've read the Bible through at least once, you know there are a number of occasions when one king would replace the previous king. What did they normally do? They exterminated the whole family. They assassinated all the sons, all the grandsons, anyone who would have had any right to the throne. They put them to death. So, you would probably be expecting more something like this from David. Is there anyone left of my enemy Saul's household that we haven't exterminated yet? Bring them in here and slay them before me. That was the common practice. So this was totally off the chart when David's court Here's these words. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? In the Hebrew, it's the word kesed. It's often translated loving kindness or mercy. All of those words are included. I like loving kindness because it's, it's not just doing a favor for someone. There's love behind this expression of kindness. And David is very serious about what he wants to do here to honor his covenant with Jonathan. He wants to show unfailing kesed, unfailing loving kindness like that of the Lord. This was their agreement. Deal with me and my descendants with God's kind of love. With God's kind of loving kindness. And I'll deal with you likewise. Not just human kindness. God's loving kindness. Now, key words for Jonathan's sake. This is critical 
to try to bring this into our time, and we're going to do that today, when we start talking about God's covenant with us and what He has covenanted to do for Christ's sake. Not for your sake, not for my sake, not for Mephibosheth's sake, for Jonathan's sake. This, this was settled maybe 20 years before any of this is going down. It was already settled because of the relationship between David and Jonathan. God settled this from eternity past, not because of you and me, but because of His Son. And everything that God the Father is doing now in your life and mine is based on covenant, and it's because of His Son. It's for Christ's sake that all these things are being done. Now, in this story, David is going to demonstrate for us, according to verse 3, God's kindness. God's loving kindness. So we're hopefully going to get a little snapshot here in the Old Testament of what God's kind of love, God's kind of kindness, that sounds funny, kind of kindness, God's loving kindness, what it looks like. Now, if I were to come up with one word for it, it's covenant love. Covenant love. And you know, We've come to a very sad state of affairs in the world today where words mean nothing, promises mean next to nothing, agreements and even legal contracts and treaties between nations mean very little. Worst of all, even covenants mean very little to people. Marriage is not what the popular people teach it to be. It's not a contract. It's not some kind of an agreement that you get drawn up in a law office. He gets this and she gets that if we don't get along. That's not what marriage was intended to be. It's called a covenant in the Bible. And the covenant that most married couples enter into is until I fall out of love with you. Is that right? Until you get old and I don't like the way you look anymore. Uh, until I don't really feel happy and fulfilled by you anymore. And therefore, we'll tear up this paper. No, it's until death do us part. It's a very serious language. And when I'm about to marry young people, I challenge them with what they're about to enter into. And I try to talk them out of it, to be honest with you, because it's very serious. And I'd rather not marry them if they're going to break it in two years. Covenant was something, I think, better understood in David's day. When you made a covenant with someone, this was binding. And remember, they said, the Lord is witness. You know why we get together for marriages? We're saying the Lord is witness to this covenant that we're making. And then three years later, we say, well, you know, I don't really like you anymore. 
I kind of feel different now. So, well, Lord, you might have witnessed this, but, you know, let's, let's dissolve it. Very little understanding now what a covenant means. This, is, this whole story is about covenant kindness, covenant love. David is doing this for Jonathan's sake. Okay? Now, enter the star, Mephibosheth. In back where we were reading in 2 Samuel 9 from verse 3, the king asks, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And the very first thing that's mentioned is he's crippled in both feet. And I want you to notice how many times that is mentioned in all of these scriptures. It's like it was something that was rubbed in over and over and over. There's Mephibosheth, but remember, he's crippled in both feet. And in verse 6, Mephibosheth is brought in. Now, let me give you a little more background here. When Saul and Jonathan died in battle, several other sons of Saul died, but there was one survivor... And he went on to try to rally himself as king over part of Israel. His name is Ishbosheth. And by no coincidence, he and Mephibosheth have the same root in their name. Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth. The Bosheth part means shame. That's what the word means in Hebrew. Shame. A shameful thing. And Ishbosheth, after two years of trying to rally the troops and trying to keep the kingdom of Saul together, he was assassinated. And just before he's assassinated, Mephibosheth is mentioned in parentheses, just kind of like. A side thought, well, this dude's about to die, and there really is just one other possible heir to the throne, but he's crippled in both feet. You find that in 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, and here we are told why Mephibosheth is crippled in both feet. Notice the whole verse is in parentheses. In other words, this is just sort of an afterthought. It's not really even that important. What the, what the writer is talking about is Ishbosheth and his assassination, which is described a few verses later. But in parentheses, we're told Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. First thing that's said about him. First thing that's said about him. He's lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. So, the reason he's mentioned here is just to show. Saul's one surviving son, Ishbosheth, 
is about to be assassinated, there's really only one other rightful heir to Saul's throne. And that would be this grandson, this one survivor, but he's lame in both feet. Every time he's mentioned, attention is called to this disability. A couple of things we can note about Mephibosheth. His condition was no fault of his own. He had no control over this, and matter of fact, the nurse who was carrying him had the best of intentions. Had she not carried him, he would have been executed. So she spared his life, but in the haste, he fell and became crippled. I don't know if he broke both ankles, what happened, but it was a permanent scarring, a permanent disability that he had nothing to do with. Sometimes we have scars. We have limitations. We have disabilities. I'm not talking just physical. We have emotional. We have spiritual scars and things on our lives that we had no control over. We had no control over. And worst of all, every one of us in this room inherited a disease from our first father, Adam. It's called sin. We all inherited that. I didn't vote for it. I didn't sign up for it. I got it because I was born. You got it because you were born. And the Bible says Adam passed that inheritance on to all of us. He sinned and we all became sinners. He died for his sin and he passed death along to all of us. So sometimes, like Mephibosheth, we may find ourselves in a certain condition, a certain situation, and we can blame this one and blame that one, but the fact is, we had the condition. Amen. And it may not have been our fault. It wasn't Mephibosheth's. Now let's talk a little bit more about the name. I mentioned the Bosheth part means shame. Ish-bosheth, I don't know who would name their son like this, his name means man of shame. Man of shame. Mephibosheth is a little harder to figure out. There are a couple of different renderings on what it means. The, the best I can come up with is the Mephib part means mouth or to blow something away. So some translate it mouth of shame. Most of the Bible dictionaries and people who are into that kind of stuff, they, they determine that it means blowing away shame, meaning a removing or a dispelling of shame. I like that one better. Because that's what's going to happen. That is exactly what we're going to see in this story. David is going to take this shameful boy who has this disability on his life and he's going to blow away all of that shame. Back to our story in 2 Samuel 9. 
from verse 6 to 8 again, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied, don't be afraid. Why did David say that? He had every reason to be afraid. When the king is calling the last survivor of Saul's whole family in, what is normally done? <laughs> and Mephibosheth's bowing down. I don't know if it was, here's my neck, go ahead, get it over with. No, no, no. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You know, since the fall, man is full of fear. What was the first thing that happened to Adam and Eve? They were afraid. Who were they afraid of? They were afraid of God, but not in a good way. And that has stayed with the human race. What keeps many people away from the Lord is fear. What's He going to do to me? Lord, if I really surrender to Christ, He might send me to India and make me a missionary. That was my fear. Guess what? He did it. I went to India. And I went to Sri Lanka. And years later, I married a Sri Lankan. And it's all good. And I look forward to going back to India. So the things we fear are these little straw men. Mephibosheth was afraid. Uh, David must have sensed that immediately when he came in. Don't be afraid. I will surely show you loving kindness for the sake of your father. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul and you will always eat at my table. I like his response. What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? If you read Romans chapter 5, and I've referred to parts of it already, how Adam sinned, he brought death upon the whole human race. If you study that chapter carefully, you will understand that before you came to Christ, you were a dead dog. You were a dead dog. The wrath of God was already sitting on your head. You were already sentenced to death. Not just death after 70 or 80 years in this world. Eternal death. Eternal separation from the living God. So his response is quite insightful. He was as good as a dead dog that day, normally speaking. The new king should have had his head off. But instead, he's going to show kindness. The kindness of the Lord. And restore everything that belonged to my grandfather. Unheard of. You know why? Because as I mentioned, 
we're going to see in this story a graphic revelation of God's kind of love. It's not normal. It's not natural. It's not how normal people would react in this given situation. Let me, let me go to Romans 5 with just one part of the story. Romans 5, let's read from verse 5 to 10. Because of his association with Saul, David could have easily viewed Mephibosheth as an enemy and certainly deserving of death. And you and I are never really going to understand the gospel, the good news of Christ, until we come to grips with the fact that we were dead dogs. We were sentenced to die. We were considered by God his enemy. Romans 5, verses 5 to 10. Okay, good. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless. Stop. Think about Mephibosheth. He's lame. He's crippled. He has a disability, physically speaking. Paul says every one of us was crippled. This word in the Greek can also be translated helpless, impotent, without any strength. We were helpless, impotent, powerless, without any strength. That's the condition we were in, but it gets worse. You see, when we were like that, Christ died, not for the saints. He died for whom? The ungodly. He died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates. I like that word. I'm a visual person. I learn things a whole lot faster when I can see them. And I like it when God demonstrates things, because I can grasp them a lot faster. God gave us a demonstration. He demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if when we were God's enemies, note those words, when we were God's enemies, you might say, oh, I've never been an enemy of God, I've always liked Him. Liar. We were God's enemies. In another place, the Bible says, in our minds, in our rebellion, in like what Pastor Quasi was referring to earlier, me. What is it? Meism? That's a new word. We gotta start, you know, patenting these words that come out of new life. The the me mind made us enemies of God. 
I want it my way, not your way, God. That's the essence of sin. It's not necessarily killing someone or committing adultery. It's every one of us has gone our own way. I want my own way. You've probably mouthed those words at some time, maybe in your childhood. No, I want it my way. Now we're grown up, we do it a little bit differently, but we're still just like that kid screaming, I want it my way. Enemies. While we were still enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? There are some amazing similarities between you and me and Mephibosheth. He had a very serious disability that he inherited from childhood. It greatly hindered him, and it was mentioned about him every time his name is mentioned in the scriptures. There's Mephibosheth, that lame guy. He was born into the wrong family. He was a part of Saul's cursed family. You and I are a part of a worse family before we come to Christ. We're Adam's descendants. There's a curse upon us. The sentence of death is always already upon us. We've inherited sin from our forefather Adam. And when Mephibosheth comes before David, he can only expect what he deserves, death. But he doesn't get what he deserves. That's why it's God's loving kindness. God's loving kindness has nothing to do with what you and I deserve. And you've got to follow me carefully here because this is my main point. It's not so much that he likes you or likes me. He loves us. But it's far bigger than that. What God is going to do for you, even though you don't deserve it, is for the sake of His Son. It's all about for the sake of someone that these covenants have such power. Years have passed, and David is now going to show kindness to a crippled man who doesn't deserve that kindness for Jonathan's sake. Jonathan's sake. Now, in the New Testament, um, Sister D, if you can switch back to King James for a couple of verses, let's go to Ephesians 4, verse 32. You find this. It's worded a little different in the other translations. It might say, on account of or in. I like these words, for his sake. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. God didn't forgive you because He likes you. Why am I saying this? Because sometimes we feel, well, I don't think God likes me very much. That's why he's not forgiving me. This has nothing to do with God's liking you or not liking you, how pretty you are or how good your performance has been. It's all about Christ. 
If your sins are forgiven today, there's only one reason why. It's because of what Jesus did. And the Father pardoned you for His sake. Covenant language. New covenant in my blood, Jesus said. These are powerful covenant words whenever you see God doing something for the sake of His Son. Look in 1 John 2, verse 12, also in the King James. Uh-oh. That was an ominous sound. Here we go. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. For His name's sake. And really, if you study the New Covenant, everything that God promises to do in the New Covenant, to remove your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh, write His law upon your heart, put it into your mind, fill you with the Holy Spirit, forgive all of your sins and all of your iniquities, it's all done for Christ's sake. It's because of Calvary that all these things are done. And so, if you have one of those days where you're not feeling real forgiven, <laughs> feeling very forgiven, first of all, forget about feelings. Start believing the words of the covenant. This is a blood covenant. And the Father, think about this, how much integrity David had to honor that little agreement that he and Jonathan made out in the field somewhere 20, 30 years before. How much integrity David had to honor the words of that covenant. Do you think God's going to go back on his word? The Bible says he cannot lie. He cannot lie. And so everything he's promised for Christ's sake is yours and mine. No question about it. All right, let's go a little further. Back to the story. 2 Samuel 9 from verse 9. Then the king summoned Ziba, um, told him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. Say everything. Everything. What's everything? Everything. That's a lot of stuff, right? In one sentence, Mephibosheth's whole life changed. Saul had a lot of stuff. He had lands and all sorts of things. Just like that, it's all yours now, Mephibosheth. All yours. Everything that belonged to Saul and his family. Now, it gets better. We're told that Ziba, I think he had 15 sons and 20 servants. That's 35 workers, right? They're all going to be Mephibosheth's servants now. Happy Father's Day. Amen. I'll take even half that. Fifteen servants. Cut the grass. Paint that. Fix the leak in the roof. You can go up and paint the chimney. You run to the store for me. <laughs> you and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him. Bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. 
and Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. That's very significant. We may not be able to grasp the significance of that, but for a king to say, you eat with me every night, that meant something. Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do, Ziba says. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. I see two aspects to the restoration that just took place here. And again, this is an unfolding of God's covenant love, God's kindness. There was a restoration of property, but more significantly, there was a restoration of relationship. Sitting at the table with the king as one of his sons, we read, signifies some sort of a restoration in their whole relationship. And we'll find something beautiful, I'm getting ahead of myself, but we'll find something at the end of the story about Mephibosheth's character that he valued the relationship more than the property. Oh, hallelujah. I felt the anointing on that one. He valued the relationship more than the property. What do you value more? What can you get from God? Or, I don't care about the stuff, Lord. Just let me sit at your table. Let me sit in your presence. Let me hear your voice. Let me see your face. Let me behold your glory. They can have all the rest. I want you, Lord. I want a relationship with you. All right. Now, if that's where the story ended, happy ending, we can all go home. There's one more little detail, though. As if being dropped and breaking both of his legs and being crippled for his whole life wasn't bad enough, now Mephibosheth, having been restored by the king, having received this unbelievable outpouring of love and grace and kindness, he's about to be slandered and betrayed by Ziba. It's an important part of the story. And you have to fast forward to 2 Samuel 16, and a whole lot of stuff has happened in David's life since we met him in chapter 9. His own son, Absalom, has risen up against his own father, stolen the hearts of the men of Israel, turned them against his father, and he's usurping the whole kingdom from his father. And you find one of the saddest pictures in David's life in chapters 15 and 16 of 2 Samuel of him weeping, leaving Jerusalem barefoot. Just in total humiliation and shame. His own son has done this to him and he's leaving Jerusalem. He's leaving the kingdom. And as he's leaving Jerusalem in that state, guess who he meets? Mephibosheth's servant, master, whatever you want to call him, Ziba. We pick it up in 2 Samuel 16. And we'll read from verse 1 to 4. I have one word for Ziba. It's creep. <laughs> He's a creep. You'll see it in a minute. 
When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Ziba, the steward, that's the better word, steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, a hundred cakes of raisins, a hundred cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. Side note, where did he get all this stuff? He stole it from Mephibosheth's estate. Why? To butter up the king. The king asked Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and fruit are for the men to eat. And the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the desert. No doubt the king is thankful for all this. But he has a question. Where is your master's grandson? Ziba said to him, Oh, he's staying in Jerusalem because he thinks today the house of Israel will give me back my grandfather's kingdom. Then the king said to Ziba, All that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. I humbly bow, Ziba said. May I find favor in your eyes, my lord the king. That's my definition of a creep. Somebody who's in a position of power and advantage, taking advantage of someone who doesn't have the same power. We will find in the next passage very clearly, he lied, he slandered, and he betrayed Mephibosheth. Why do these things happen to the Mephibosheths of the world? I don't know, but they do. Maybe they've happened to you. Stop asking why it happened. Again, Mephibosheth is getting a raw deal for no fault of his own. Are you with me? David normally would have had more discernment in a matter like this, but let's cut him some slack. He's just been betrayed by his own son. He can't trust anyone now. He doesn't know who's who. And here he is leaving Jerusalem barefoot, and this news comes, okay, you take everything that belonged to Mephibosheth. End of story. After Absalom's death, his attempt to usurp the throne failed. David, in 2 Samuel 19, is now coming back to the palace, back to Jerusalem. And he meets some people along the way. 2 Samuel 19. Verse 24 to 30. Trust me, I'm almost done here. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. By the way, I'm not going to go back and show you now, but if you remember in 2 Samuel 9, we talked a little bit about the timeline here. By the time David called Mephibosheth in, he was a grown man. He had a son named Micah. He's mentioned there in that passage. So probably 20 years or so may have passed 
between the death of his father, Jonathan, and the time of Phibosheth is being shown all this kindness by David. Now, a little more time has passed. David is coming back to his kingdom, and here's Mephibosheth to meet him. He had not taken care of his feet, or trimmed his mustache, or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. I'm starting to see something about Mephibosheth. This guy's got character. He appreciates kindness. He understands grace. He realizes he's not getting what he deserved in life. He's a recipient of God's kindness. And that changes the way you interpret and filter things that happen in life. He's very grateful now for King David. And notice again the relationship that is happening here. Verse 25. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, what's the first thing on David's mind? Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? My translation, Mephibosheth, you're like one of my sons now. Why weren't you there by my side? He said, my lord the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and I will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me. And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. My lord the king is like an angel of God, meaning you have wisdom, you have discernment. So you do whatever pleases you. All my grandfather's descendants deserved nothing but death. This guy's got something. He understands what's going on here. I'm not getting what I deserve. That's what I deserve. I was a dead dog. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. Listen to these words. So what right? Say that with me. What right? We think we have all kinds of rights. That's where we get into trouble. We start demanding things. We start expecting things. Well, I have a right to be treated like this. Oh, really? Let's study it. What right do I have to make any more appeals to the king. The king said to him, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the fields. Remember what I said earlier about restoration of property and restoration of relationship? The relationship was valued far more by Mephibosheth. Here it's going to be tested and proven. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything. Let him take everything. Now that my lord the king has arrived home safely. This will be tested in your life and mine. What is more valued? What is more important in your life? Stuff or your relationship with God? 
You might be able to get a whole lot more stuff. Just compromise the relationship. I love Mephibosheth. Let him take everything. <laughs> this is a man that I think deeply understood and appreciated God's kindness that was shown to him through David. And you know, one of the parables in Matthew 18, Jesus addresses this very issue with the parable of the unforgiving servant. He was forgiven millions of dollars of debt, and then one of his servants owes him a couple of bucks, and he's strangling him, saying, pay me back everything you owe me. He didn't get it. He really didn't understand grace. He didn't understand the great gift that had been given to him. Now you give it to others. That's why in Ephesians 4.32, Paul said, Wait a minute, you have been forgiven for Christ's sake, therefore forgive one another. You have a pastor, you don't know what he did to me 47 years ago. I think about it every night. Good, it's destroying you. It's not bothering him, it's destroying you. But, pastor, you don't understand. This was done to me when I was a child, and it's not my fault. I get it. How, long, how much longer are you going to blame X, Y, or Z for your condition? Rather than go into the king and receive his loving kindness. In 1 Corinthians 6, you may think I'm going off track here, but I'm going to touch on this and then we're going to close this up. We were talking about this on Friday night in our prayer meeting that your whole relationship with God, your whole view on life, the way you pray, everything will change when you start thinking, how does this affect God? What does this do to God's name? What does it do to God's reputation? And like Pastor was saying, so often, all we're thinking about is me. What effect does this have on me? Maybe it'll make me feel better. But what does it do to the name and the reputation of the Lord? I want you to notice, that's at the heart of what Paul is sharing here in 1 Corinthians 6. The Corinthian church was a mess. They're described as babies in Christ. They were very immature. They were fighting and quarreling. They had divisions and all kinds of stuff going on in the church. They had fist fights at communion. Nice, huh? Hallelujah. Lord, why did you call me to be a pastor? <laughs> Can I trade this in on something else? Fist fights at the communion. It got worse. They were taking each other to court and suing them. I don't know, maybe I mentioned Darius' name once on Sunday and he finds a good lawyer. We're going to sue that guy for libel. He said something bad about me in front of the whole church and it's on the internet now. Six million dollars. See you in court in December. It was happening. And listen, man, Paul got hot. He got hot sometimes right into these churches and he was hot when he wrote this one. 
He says in 1 Corinthians 6.1, If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges, even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother goes to law against another and... This part is what I want you to see. And this in front of unbelievers. You see, whether we like it or not, the world is watching us. We're on a little stage. And I'll, I'll give you a, a little secret here. The world knows how Christians are supposed to act. Yes. Isn't that weird? Yes. They're not Christians, but they know how we're supposed to act. And they're watching us very carefully. And when they see this kind of garbage, they go, ha! Yeah, right. Y'all are walking with the Lord, huh? And going to court against each other. Shaming the name of the Lord. You do this and in front of unbelievers, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Wow, he's hot. You've already lost. Bringing it back to our story, you don't even understand the grace by which you were saved if you're doing this stuff. Because here's Paul's counsel. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? What strange advice. But it works. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. I had a member in one of my churches years ago. He had a very lucrative business, and Christians were taking advantage of him and having him do all kinds of things for them, different services he would render, and they never paid him. And he came to me one day and he said, Pastor, you know, I, I've done all these things for Christians, and this one owes me $10,000, this one owes me $20,000. We're talking about a lot of money. Back then, this is 25, 30 years ago. Thousands and thousands of dollars that Christians had defrauded him for. Cheated him. They knew what they were doing. Oh, can you do this for me, do this for me, do this for me? Oh, well, you know, we're brothers. I can't pay you back. And so he came to me and he says, Pastor, what should I do? I said, brother, you got to fight. He's like, yeah. I said, I'm not done yet. 
you got to fight for your peace. Don't fight this in the court. And I've, I've read these verses to him. You might win your $30,000 back. You're going to lose your testimony and you're going to shame the name of the Lord. Paul says, be cheated. Let yourself be wronged. Let somebody like Ziba come along and lie and slander and cheat you out of half of what belonged to you. What does Ziba say? Don't give him half. Give him the whole thing. Let me be cheated, but let me sit at the king's table as one of his sons. And you know, when you do the right thing in those situations, let me tell you something. There's a God in heaven that sorts all this stuff out. It isn't over just yet. And you watch what the Lord does when you do the right thing. And if you and I have even an inkling of the grace, the mercy, the loving kindness that has been shown to us, as was shown to Mephibosheth, I think we'll be a lot quicker to forgive others, overlook faults, let people cheat us, slander us, do whatever they want to do about us. Hallelujah. I'm just going to go back and sit down at the table with King David and have my dinner with him tonight. In conclusion, there's one last little part of the story. You've got to go even further in time. In 2 Samuel 21, there was a famine in the land. And David was crying out to God, Lord, three years no rain. Why are we having this famine? It was revealed to him it's because of what Saul did to the Gibeonites. And the Israelites, remember, they were tricked in the days of Joshua into making a treaty with the Gibeonites. And they had to honor that treaty because words meant something. Well, Saul comes along and he says, I don't care about any treaty. Kill them all. And he assassinated many, many, many of the Gibeonites. So here we are many years later now. There's a famine in the land. God tells David the reason for the famine is what Saul did to the Gibeonites. You better put it right. He calls in some representatives of the Gibeonites. And they say, what do we need to do to make this right? They said, give us seven of Saul's descendants and execute them as retribution. David did that. But listen carefully to the word. 2 Samuel 21.7 The king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul. Why? Because he liked the way he looked? He liked his mustache? He felt sorry for him because he was crippled? No. Because of the oath between the Lord before the Lord, between David and Jonathan. He spared him because of the oath. That's why when we're praying over things, you often hear us say, we plead the blood of Jesus. Those aren't just crazy words. What we're doing is appealing to the covenant. God, because of the covenant, because of the blood that sealed it, I'm your child. 
We were all once shameful things, like Mephibosheth, deserving death and under a curse. But God has demonstrated, demonstrated His love and His kindness to us. It's called covenant love. Maybe the next time we take communion and we talk about the blood of the covenant, it'll mean a little bit more to us. These aren't just words to God. They aren't just promises. They're oaths. These are covenants that He intends to bide by and honor until the end. Hebrews calls it an everlasting covenant. God's love for you is not one way yesterday, a different way today, and change tomorrow because of your performance. Yes, our performance can be like this, but God is like this. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. When, when Mephibosheth understood what was being offered to him, all he could do was bow down and say, your servant. That's all we can do. Bow down, surrender, and say, your servant. Your servant. Stand with me. Father God, we thank you for the greater son of David, Jesus of Nazareth, who with his own blood ratified and sealed an everlasting covenant that God would honor, our Father would honor, that if we would repent and believe in Him, all of our sins would be forgiven. We would be spared the death that we deserved. We would be snatched out of darkness and translated into a whole different kingdom, the kingdom of the Son He loves. The kingdom of light. God, help us to understand, to appreciate, and to be even more grateful for the grace, the kindness, and the mercy that you have extended to us. Not just for our sake, but for the sake of your Son. Because of what Jesus did, his perfect, absolutely perfect obedience to you in every detail, you now honor His sacrifice and those who trust in that sacrifice. God, we thank You that You're not a, a man that You should lie. You cannot change Your mind about these things. They are set, immutable. And God, that gives us comfort and it gives us assurance that we are forgiven. We are children of God. We're sons and daughters of God. And we can pray, Our Father, who art in heaven. Father, we thank you today that we can walk as children. We can sit down at the king's table as one of the king's sons, king's daughters, realizing that great favor has been bestowed upon us. Great restoration of things lost in the past has taken place, not for our sake, but for the sake of your Son. To his name be glory and honor and praise forever and ever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. Happy Father's Day. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good week.